Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome to another episode of the Addy Hour. Today, it's my immense pleasure to be able to welcome Dr. Michael Eric Dyson to the Addy Hour for a conversation about race, community, and mental health. This is someone who obviously needs no introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and give a brief one anyway. Uh, Dr. Dyson is the Centennial Chair at Vanderbilt University and also a University Distinguished Professor of African American and Diaspora Studies in the Colleges of Arts and Sciences and a University Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Society in the Divinity School. He's someone who also is a New York Times contributing opinion writer, also contributing editor at New Republic and ESPN's The Undefeated has written numerous books, has another book coming out very soon, which we'll probably talk about on this podcast as well. And he's someone who has won lots of dis- uh, prestigious awards, including an American Book Award, two NAACP Image Awards. And Ebony has also cited him as one of the 100 most influential African-Americans and one of the 150 most powerful Blacks in the nation. Um, so someone who continues to contribute to public discourse and public debate on places like The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Real Time with Bill Mahler, Good Morning America, The Today Show, All Things Considered, Tavis Smiley, Def Poetry Jam, the list goes on and on. But all that to say is that I'm very grateful that he's taken time out of his busy schedule, Dr. Dyson. I really appreciate you being here on the Addy Hour podcast and welcome. Thank you, sir. It's always uh, great to be with a distinguished uh, intellectual and uh, you know influencer like yourself. So uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. And I appreciate those kind words and really excited about this conversation. Um, so again, you know, just with the the um, all the impact that you have in your place as such a distinguished scholar and cultural critic, uh, Baptist preacher, activist, influencer, a lot of the topics that you touch on are really near and dear to the conversations that we have on this podcast as well, especially as we think about how aspects of race, racism, social justice, and equity impact and interact with mental health in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to start out, you know, my listeners know I like to just check in and see how people are doing. So in the midst of everything that's going on with the ongoing pandemic, with COVID, with the ongoing systemic racial injustices, even as we are preparing for the start of the trial for Ahmaud Aubrey, the murder trial, just wanted to ask how you're doing in this current moment uh, in general with everything going on. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, it is a, a bit much uh, for all of us to deal with, with covid uh, with the global pandemic, with the racial reckoning that we're undergoing still, mm-hmm. the trial of Ahmad Arbery, and I write about him <clears throat> in my uh, book, A Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. Uh, 
So it's a lot for us as a community, but uh, I'm holding up, holding up the bloodstained banner of truth mm. and commitment to the faith that my ancestors have passed on to me, uh, that my role models have given to me. So I'm, uh, I'm in good shape and uh, glad to be here with you this morning. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, just the, the importance of the path that's been blazed before us uh, from the ancestors. So I appreciate you mentioning uh, that as well. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask, you know, I, I heard one of your one of your recent interviews on the uh, the Breakfast Club, when you were just talking about, you know, coming up and not necessarily thinking about self-care, per se, and how right, you right, went right. about things. But, you know, just thinking about who you are as a person, all the conversations that you're continually involved in, a lot of heavy topics, how do you manage all of that in the midst of just trying to think about your own, you know, emotional wellness and care in the, in the midst of that. Yes, sir. Well, I credit the younger generation with giving us uh, your generation and even those younger mm. uh, with uh, forcing us to confront this. You know, mm. we avoided it. Uh, we were traumatized, re-traumatized, <clears throat> felt that we had to go on regardless. And I think there's something to be said for that mm-hmm. uh, mindset, <clears throat> but there's also something to be said for reckoning with your own internal clock, Mm. rhythm, your cadence, your flow, uh, your mental health, your stability, your outlook, uh, your anxiety meter, your depression measure, Mm. uh, because we're all bombarded relentlessly and constantly from both external uh, stimuli and forces and internal uh, realities that we confront, perceptions, thoughts, emotions, uh, memories that haunt us, mm. that trigger us. So uh, it is extremely necessary to do uh, that kind of inventory. You know, I like sports events, going out and looking at basketball and football mm. and watching movies. <laughs> so uh, those are some of the things that uh, keep me going, uh, keep me refreshed uh, and the like, mm-hmm. and listening to music and, and so on, going to a concert and, and so on. Those kinds of things are extremely important. Mm-hmm. Trying to get in an exercise regimen, get in better shape, you know, because you got to be here in order to be here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I think the younger generation has reminded us of the politics of self-care mm. and the necessity of engaging it without the kind of guilt that older people did, mm. without lapsing into some of the extremes of uh, self-care. Because if self-care mm. comes at the expense of other care, Mm. or myopic narcissistic self-preoccupation at the expense Mm. of commitment to the larger society. Was it good for Martin Luther King Jr. to do all he did? If he was really concerned about self-care, would he have marched on some days? No. Mm. Would he have spoken on some other days? No. So you got to balance out, you know, a commitment to a higher purpose and a greater goal with also the recognition that you've got to be here and in good space and spirits and body and in health and mind in order to render the best service possible. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. And it sounds like you have so many of those pieces just baked in to what you do yeah. on a daily basis. But yes, I think sir. it's really key, you know, you touched on the generational difference too. And I even see that myself, you know, even with younger trainees there coming up, it seems like they're so invested in so many different things, which I felt like in some ways I kind of waited till I got to a certain level of stature before mm-hmm. I really jumped into some of those passions, even though those passions were there. How How is that process for you in terms of, you know, developing your passions and pursuing them. How did that come about? And how did you get to this place in your career of being so involved in so many different spheres of influence? Well, as they say in basketball, I took what the defense gave me. 
<laughs> so it's what opportunities and obstacles mm. presented themselves. Some mm. doors opening, other doors closing. Mm. And some windows being lifted and some being nailed shut. Uh, it doesn't mean that I have a fatalistic outlook and perspective mm. that suggests that if it's difficult, therefore it's not for me. That's not the case. Yeah. But if you keep banging your head against the window and knocking against the door and it ain't opening, then consider mm -hmm. opening another door, considering that door ain't for you. Yeah. Considering that God might be looking out for you. What you asking for ain't what you need to have mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. without being uh, paternalistic or uh, masking human authoritarianism with mm -hmm. an appeal to, um, you know, God's providence. But at the end of the day, you got to have a sense of connection and spiritual attunement mm. so that you are constantly praying for the best path, looking for the best opportunity, uh, trying to create uh, the next level of investment and the return on that investment and what mm. your spiritual growth and your career growth and your professional growth and your vocational growth mm. will be. <clears throat> so for me, it's been a measure of trying to match my goals and my gifts mm -hmm. what goals are dictated by my gifts mm -hmm. now you might want to be a basketball player there's some who are my height maybe five ten you know yeah, maybe yeah, Isaiah Thomas <laughs> what was that there's some good examples there's height, some good definitely. examples but the fact that they're relatively few yeah. would suggest that that ain't you know the likelihood as opposed to a person six five six ten and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, so or what are your skills and what are your intuitions generated uh, as a result of? And so when I look at what my intuitional base is, it's premised on an intellectual engagement with the world, an analysis of things as they are, mm -hmm. a kind of spiritual connection to them as an ordained minister, as an intellectual, as a professor. You know, I developed those talents of thinking and reflecting and writing and engaging the world. And as a result of that, doors opened, opportunities presented themselves, and I began to reinforce the value mm. of my self-perception and linking my goals and my gifts. Mm -hmm. And I think if more of us would link our goals and gifts, uh, we would understand you know, how it is that uh, what God has placed in us mm. can be elicited, can be evoked, can be brought out as a result of whatever circumstances, opportunities, or obstacles present themselves that, mm. you know, encourage us, coerce us uh, to deal with what's around us. So, you know, my pastor coming into my church at when I was 12 years old, me in, in uh, entering uh, oratorical contests when I was 11 mm. years old, uh, being asked to speak parts in church when I was younger than that. Mm. My fifth grade teacher, Mrs. James, teaching us about Black history when it wasn't popular in mm. 1968. Wow, that's uh, and winning a blue ribbon for reciting the poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So my gifts matched, uh, you know, and dictated to a degree my goals. Mm -hmm. If this is my skill set, if these are my gifts and talents, what do I use them to? Mm -hmm. uh, realize and what ambitions uh, do I nurture in my own heart and mind in order uh, to find that re that relationship between my gifts and my goals mm -hmm. and that allow me to live a satisfying life. So that's how I've tried to play it so far. Yeah, that's really powerful. And the fact that you remember your fifth grade teacher's name, that's saying something. Oh, man, she was extremely important. Uh, life changing. Mm -hmm. 
you know, <clears throat> my mother told me later that many of the black parents, because I'm in a segregated school, mm-hmm. even though I'm living up north in Detroit, uh, we had a white principal, Mrs. Christensen, I remember, but oh. we had black teachers and black mm-hmm. staff and everything else was black in that school, including the students. Mm-hmm. And my mother said they went to Mrs. Christensen and complained to her, the black, some of the black parents, about the black fifth grade teacher, Mrs. James. Mm-hmm. What are what you know? What are they going to do with this black history stuff? This is not part of the mm-hmm. curriculum. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, I'm a PhD from Princeton University. And I've written 25 books and I write about politics and race and culture and religion and all the stuff that she taught us then. So, Mrs. Mm. James, your efforts paid off. Wow. Yeah. Such a legacy and such an impact. Mm-hmm. And I love how you put those two together and you're know, following your putting your goals and your passions together. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of some of our listeners and just things I've heard from people who might say, well, I have these goals and these passions, but I don't have any opportunities to 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 actually carry those things out or run into obstacles, mm-hmm. even as you talked about trying to have that discernment about knowing when to push through something if there's resistance, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. knowing when to shift. So how have you done that in your life when those obstacles have come up? And how would you, you know, give advice to others who may be listening who are saying, well, I have these passions and goals, but I just can't find a lane or an avenue right. to really move that stuff forward? Well, that's part of the the deal, right? That's mm. part of the package. If you don't have a lane, if you don't have an opportunity after so many tries, mm. after so many attempts, and there's no measure, no metric that is scientifically uh, rooted. Mm. You don't know if it's 10 years or 10 days. Mm. Yep. You know, it's, it's depending upon what your spirit is, what your outlook is, how much cash you got, what mm. you need to do in the meantime, how many kids you got, who you got to raise, what parents you need to address their situation. So all of these existential measures mm. Uh, our indices, our our marks, our metrics uh, that we deploy to 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 determine how st- how much stick toitiveness we should display in a particular pursuit. Mm. You know, some people. You know, Toni Morrison wasn't a professional writer until she was what thirty nine years old. Mm. Imagine had she given up, we mm. would have missed mm. arguably the greatest. American writer of her generation, the greatest black writer ever. And uh, we would have missed out on Sula or we would have missed out on Milkman Dead. We would have missed out on, um, you know, uh, Beloved and so on and so forth. And, you know, we would have missed out on her genius. Mm -hmm. So thank God she was persistent, but she had a job in the meantime. She was an editor at Random House. She was editing Angela Davis's work. She was working with Tony Cade Bambara. So she was nurturing talent as she mm-hmm. was nurturing her own. Her job was one thing, her vocation another, yeah. her vision yet another. Yeah. Uh, if you can find a space, as I tell my sons and daughter, find something you would do if nobody paid you a dime and mm-hmm. then figure out a way to make money doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can support yourself. Yeah. So you can support your dream. So there's no exact scientific calibration. There's no exact scientific measure or metric or meter or goal uh, determiner. Mm-hmm. It's what you're made of and it's what you're looking at and it's how much you're able to sustain yourself in the midst of that and how tenacious you are willing to be in <clears throat> and persistent in the face of opposition in the face of opposition. So, you know, um, and in my case, you know, uh, I wanted to write, I wanted to think, I thought I was going to be a, 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 a minister. I am a minister mm. who was a pastor, but I went, I passed the three different churches, got kicked out of the third one. 
because uh, I was trying to ordain three women as deacons back in 83. And uh, that door closed on me. Now, I'm still committed to gender justice in the church, mm-hmm. but maybe the pastorate wasn't the path for me. Mm-hmm. And so when that door closed rather precipitously, you know, I began to focus uh, on becoming a scholar and using my gifts that way. And maybe my ministry was in the classroom and not in the pulpit alone or primarily. And so you get signals and hints yep. and indications. Again, how do you know which one is for you or not? It's, a, it's an experimentation. Yep. It's a trial and error, uh, sometimes trial and terror, mm-hmm. uh, because the lack of fulfillment can terrorize you, can taunt a lot, can tantalize you, can traumatize you. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure it out. You know, what are your resources? What are your internal senses of things? What are your intuitions about what you're doing and how much more you can take? You know, we say God doesn't put anything on you that you can't take any more on your plate than you can consume or Mm -hmm. any more weight on your shoulders that you can bear. Sometimes that's a tough, tough way to go. But having said that, in my case, testing, as the Bible says, test the spirits, Mm -hmm. testing out what my gifts and goals were Mm -hmm. as I reshape my goals premised upon my gifts or the particular moment in which I was able to realize those goals and ambitions because I had my goals and I had my gifts, but I didn't have, as you said, the opportunity to realize them. What do I do in the meantime? Mm -hmm. How do I realize it? How do I recognize there's more than one way to get to a particular goal? Mm -hmm. If you live in New York and you're trying to get to Broadway, there are many ways to many more streets and avenues to get there. Uh, to that street. So you got to look at alternative routes and and the like. So when you put all that together, uh, it gives you a sense of how much you're willing to invest, how long you're willing to invest it, how much you're capable of sustaining yourself in the midst of that. And everything ain't for everybody. Every route is not for everybody else. Your route is unique and different than my route. So, Mm -hmm. but if we have uh, the same goal of realizing our ambitions and the willingness to stick to it, sometimes that determines even more than talent. Mm. Just the ability to sit your butt in the seat and keep writing, mm-hmm. keep thinking, <laughs> keep talking, yep. keep doing what you do, just yep. outlasting everybody else mm. until your opportunity comes. Yep. So you got to be moved by the measure and the moment of the spirit within, the sense of within, the intuition from within, and the downright dogged determination to do what you got to do until you can uh, reach your goals. I mean, yeah. all of that is a measure of what to do, and there's no scientific way to tell anybody to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely appreciate that, even as a scientist, because as you said, that just, that's just not the way it flows. And just that uh, that persistence mm-hmm. in the passion, regardless of the doors closing, even as you were sharing aspects of your story as well. But you, so. talked, you touched a little bit about the generational differences, some of the positive generational differences in terms of really incorporating that self-care and having a balance in that way too. Have, mm-hmm. From your lens and your perspective, have you also seen any generational differences in terms of expectation? Because you touched on that, you know, some mm-hmm. of these things didn't happen in a minute. They may have taken 10 mm-hmm. months, 10 years. And how do you keep that passion while yeah. the prize isn't there? Like you, not to break it down too much generationally, but right. I'm just curious from your, you know, from yeah, what you've seen well, over the years. Yeah, no, I think there are generational differences. Some of us exaggerate them. <laughs> Because genre may be more important than generation, mm. by which I mean, 
If you were a hustler 100 years ago, you might be a hustler today. Mm. If you were tenacious 100 years ago, you might be tenacious today. Mm-hmm. A certain kind of personality that bucked the system. Mm-hmm. You could have been Nat Turner then. You could be Stacey Abrams now. Mm. So the genre, mm-hmm. the measure, the spirit, mm-hmm. the approach, the style of difference could persist over space and time. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you could be Mal, you know, Frederick Douglass then. You could be Malcolm X now and so on. Um, you could be, um, Harriet Tubman then, um, you can be Cheryl and Eiffel now. Now, having said that, I think there are differences of generation in terms of expectation, because look at the load, the burden that's put on this generation. Mm. Can you imagine if we, I mean, I didn't have Facebook coming up. I had to face the book and read it. Mm. <laughs> it's only Facebook, <laughs> face that book, boy, and read it. You know, I didn't yeah, have Twitter. I was yeah. a Twitter. I was excited about stuff. <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, swipe left, swipe right. <laughs> you know, uh, what's that thing they call the, when you do the dating service, uh, when you're swiping and stuff, uh, tender. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have to be tender in our emotions toward the people we loved, but we ain't had no tender to yeah, figure out. On top of this and I am, I got to say. Yeah, who, who, to, <laughs> who to date. I mean, social media is a game changer. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it's been extraordinary. Um the internet has been extraordinary. Stuff it took you, like I had to go to the library <laughs> to figure out where the lies were buried and dig oh them up. Goodness. <laughs> and some of the books. Mm. You had to go to the library, the, the, the periodical readers catalog, all that. Mm. You had to go to the, you know, to find out what article was published in what year. Man, that, that was shoe leather. That was pavement. That was physical mm-hmm. geography <clears throat> and archaeology of knowledge in books, which I love. I still do. Smelling them going to bookstores and libraries where you could just browse. I wasn't even looking for that book and it mm. popped up. Mm. Professor Addy and what is going on. And I didn't even know about that. And that's mm. amazing. Now you can browse even more uh, reams of gigs of data uh, on the internet, stuff it used to take us, you know, weeks, you can now have at your fingertips mm. and archives of knowledge and digitized books and libraries. It's phenomenal. On the other hand, mm. man, there's the expectation is out of order. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be immediately successful. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, we're going to note it on Twitter. You didn't mm-hmm. do well. And your book didn't sell as much. And your, you know, uh, work doesn't pay off as quickly as others. Because now you're measuring not just a person in your own neighborhood or mm-hmm. in your own classroom. You're measuring yourself against all of the people on Twitter, mm-hmm. all of the people on Facebook, all of the people on Instagram. And you looking at what they're doing and you figuring you ain't got what they got and so on. Now, it's not that keeping up with the Jones didn't prevail before but if you didn't have the instagram to see somebody posting up archiving their lives in a way that ain't really the truth got filters on there they ain't really what they look like they got cellulite or sell you heavy whatever they selling you anyway so the point is all this stuff now filters and you know stories and archiving your life in a way that's not organic necessarily i'm not crapping on it mm-hmm. It's another outlet, but dead gum. There are some lethal, deleterious consequences mm-hmm. to that as well. And also in terms of expectation, people are going to be perfect and live a certain kind of life. You sitting up on the internet judging people. You sitting up on Twitter administering cancel culture. I know it ain't popular to talk about it. People say, oh, cancel culture doesn't exist. That's the right-wing phenomenon. They don't want to be held accountable. That's true for many people who are conservative <clears throat> or or 
not the same thing, people who are racist or sexist or transphobic or homophobic and all that, they just don't want to be called out. So I get that. On the other hand, there is something about this self-righteousness that you're judging other people, that you can't make a mistake, or if you make a mistake, you can't overcome it and acknowledge you did it. No, you're canceled. You're done. That's 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 ludicrous. That's yeah. crazy. No room for growth. There is no room for growth because you can't admit you messed up, and now nobody can admit that they made an error because if you admit you made an error, <clears throat> then you can't say nothing, <clears throat> and you can't talk about it, and you can't open yourself up to it. There's no continuum. There's no spectrum to be had here. There's no difference, mm. you know, and, and some of these feminists who were, you know, talking about certain things, be treating women worse than anybody else. Some of these mm. anti-racists hate black people more than anybody else. Mm. So I'm saying like, dog, slow down with that mm. kind of judgment. Cause I mm. seen you from behind the scenes. Mm. I know the kind of funky stuff you doing and okay, you can grow, you can develop, you can have an organic relationship with truth and, you know, um, evolution of mind and mm. so on. And, mm. you know, all of us need the space to admit we messed up and grow, mm -hmm. but nobody can do it. Mm -hmm. Nobody can say they messed up now. Nobody can acknowledge mm -hmm. that they have made a mistake because to acknowledge that mistake is to immediately be judged mm -hmm. and to be done away with and mm -hmm. to have the swift, you know, digital lynch mob descend mm -hmm upon you know vulnerable people and we're all vulnerable people yep. so we can never mess up we can never fess up and then dress up and move on to the next situation and i'm mm. i'm you know that that to me is destructive it's yep. painful and it's problematic to the nth degree yeah yeah totally agree with that and i'm curious what you think on how we actually cultivate that because that's such an important piece i mean i was saying there's no room for growth we aren't perfect people mm -hmm. we don't have room to grow we're not going to get through the challenges and get to a place of healing. And then even as I think about that and tie that back into mental health, not to say that mental health challenges are an area where people have messed up, but it's an area of struggle. And so I think that same kind of feeling comes into the mental health piece too, where people are struggling. There's no room to say I'm struggling because that looks like imperfection. So how do we actually cultivate yeah. that and get mm -hmm. to a healthier place where we can all actually grow and heal and move forward and, and get off of this facade as it were? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, stop lying to yourself mm. and, and admit to yourself you messed up, but you can't do it because if I admit to myself I messed up, then I got imposter syndrome. Or I don't think I belong there. And then mentally, look at what you're doing, the mendacity, the lies, the mm. thick coat of lies. You're talking about self-help or you're talking about, you know, self-care. How are you going to care about yourself if you can't tell yourself the truth, but you can't you can't tell yourself the truth because if you tell yourself the truth and you acknowledge some of the stuff that's going on, then you'd have to tell others that same truth. And you'd have to admit that you ain't as perfect as it appears that you are. Mm -hmm. And I, and again, <clears throat> the, the, the social structure then prevents individual consciousness, the individuation that is a measure of psychological health, the ability to individuate, to establish a basis of individual ego driven in the best sense of that word, mm. recognition and self-identification with those goals and aspirations nurtured in you that produce a healthy outcome, a healthy ego, a healthy sense of self whether you're dealing with analytical psychology of Carl Gustav Jung or, you know, the psychoanalytic framework of Freud or the indirect approach of Rogers or, you know, the best of black psychological uh, therapy that joins a consciousness of anti-blackness to the, the kind of self-hatred that might be uncritically or unconsciously internalized, whatever. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if you can't acknowledge that, if you can't fess up and say, dead gummit, I messed up or I'm not perfect, 
and I need help. It's, it's a contradictory message. On the one hand, self-care is about, I'm not well enough today. I'm Naomi Osaka. I can't follow through. I'm mm-hmm. Simone Biles. I can't follow through and so on. Mm-hmm. And then if you admit that, and then if you say, but then, you know, part of the blame could be that I'm not ready. I didn't prepare. I'm psychologically not ready for the world that is hurting me. Oh, what? What's wrong? So, you know, it's it's tough out here mm-hmm. to be able to do that. So you've got to have a world, create scenes, cosmoses, uh, you know, worldviews, uh, intimate connections, uh, communities, uh, gatherings, mm-hmm. um, organizations, where you're able to share that knowledge, be safe, a safe place mm-hmm. where you can tell the truth and not be immediately judged. And one person's safe space is another person's vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And even if, if people insist on their having safe spaces, they're developing those uh, at the expense of forcing others uh, to bow down before their narrow conception mm-hmm. of what is appropriate and good and healthy and uplifting. So we got to be honest about this stuff yeah. and stop holding each other to unreasonable standards and and uh, unrighteous attempts uh, to assault people mm-hmm. out of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Righteousness. Now, yes, there's a way in which you can hold each other accountable, even as we recognize our faults and flaws. It doesn't mean that therefore anything goes. And as mm-hmm. long as I say I messed up, I don't have to be accountable. Yes, we all have to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. There are things that I've done that of which I am enormously ashamed. Mm-hmm. And I can say that openly. Mm-hmm. But man, man, I can't really get too specific about it because if I get too specific, then others, you know, begin to chime in and yep and and hate on you while they're not admitting the stuff that they mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. You know, some sins are more visible than others. Some mm-hmm. flaws are more evident than others. Others are emotional sins or mm-hmm. internal psychological sins that we commit against self or others, mm-hmm. uh, bad words, bad thoughts, uh, accompanying bad deeds. So, you know, we got to be extremely careful and cautious about the judgmentalism and the harshness that mm-hmm. goes in the name of politically correct or even woke ideology yep. about holding people to account. If Martin Luther King Jr. could forgive white supremacists mm-hmm. and racists and people who were killing black people, mm-hmm. then we got to show some more love to each other. Mm-hmm. And we show to the white people who are trying to murder us back in the day and mm-hmm. some who are doing it today. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there. So, so much that's important. Um, and things that I think we can really pull, pull apart. One, one piece I wanted to ask a little bit more and kind of dig deep in is this idea of individual versus community. Cause you talked about, you know, how we haven't paid attention to that in terms, in terms of our self-care, but I'm curious just even, even in terms of the historical context of that in this country and what the, you know, such the, the emphasis on the community suffering that was happening and kind of the importance of resilience is a word that gets thrown around for good or for bad. I mean, we could dig into mm. that as well, but how, how do we balance those twos? Because in, in one sense, it seems that the individualism, individualism was squelched in order so that we could thrive as a community at the same time that could happen at the expense of the individual. So how do we how do we balance that in our current moment? Because there are even ways that that happens today, even again, thinking about the mental health aspect, thinking about some of the work that David Williams has done at Harvard, just showing the negative mental health impacts in black and brown communities in states where individuals have been killed at the hands of police, unarmed individuals, and right. what effect that has on the community and on the individual. So I guess I'm trying, you know, how do we just tease those pieces apart? Because they're both important, but there's consequences of leaning too heavily on one side or the other. 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, David Williams, Joy Degree, you know, when you think about the uh, post-slave syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, post-slave trauma traumatic syndrome, uh, where she <clears throat> speaks about the trauma we endure collectively mm -hmm. as an enslaved people. Um, so, and Brother Williams. So, yeah, the, the psychological consequence. But they've also done psychological studies of hope, mm -hmm. that people who hope unrealistically mm -hmm. suffer just as much. Mm -hmm. Like, woo, so it's deep now. Mm -hmm. You got too much unrealistic hope, you're jacked up. Uh, you're too pessimistic. You're jacked up. You're too nihilistic. You're jacked up. Dad, gum. What's what's a what's a brother to do? What's a sister to do? Uh, so the thing is, is that yeah, there are community trauma communities that are traumatized. Mm -hmm. When we see black people who are subject to the vicious, um, you know, assault of a dominant white supremacist society, that traumatizes mm -hmm. all of us, mm -hmm. and our individuality is wiped away. The, the irony is the struggle of the collective is for the individual to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Don't treat us like dadgum parts of the same community only mm -hmm. in terms of your stereotype. All black people are lazy. Mm -hmm. All black people, uh, you know, are unfaithful to the task at hand, right? All black people are, and fill in the blanks, everything you say about black people is true about everybody, every group. Mm -hmm. But you begin to stereotype and rigorously, or you know, don't apply rigor mm -hmm. to your deconstruction of those practices, uh, dispositions, habits, and inclinations of of black people to behave in a certain way, mm -hmm. and that they're not just black. Everybody does that, right? Mm -hmm. Every community that is poor will engage in criminal activity. Every community whose back is against the wall, right? Poles, Jews, Italians, mm -hmm. you know, in this country who were in the shadow and the ghetto before African people in America. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, the unique condition of being enslaved in this country uh, and then being, you know, then having the force and power of the state turned against us and denying our humanity, that has to be acknowledged too, mm -hmm. and the psychological consequences of that. So yes, there's a psychological consequence to being treated as a group, all black people and fill in the blanks, all black people fill in the blanks, all black people fill in the blanks, the stereotypes, the narrow conceptions, and a stereotype is a lazy person's way of dealing with the other. Some of it, mm -hmm. some small part of it could be true, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of the data rests upon a refusal to acknowledge the person before me. And to put the group before all Jews, all Poles, all Italians, all Lithuanians, um, and and all Polish and blah blah blah, you know, do X, Y, and Z, as opposed to dealing with the individual person, Jewish, Italian, Polish, um, you know, Korean uh, before me, mm. uh, while at the same time acknowledging that there are group traits that are developed as a result of having imposed upon those groups certain restrictions so that a group consciousness is developed. But you mad at us, well, why all you black people gotta come together as a group? Why, why can't you be treated as an individual? That's when they want they don't wanna deal with the racism question, mm -hmm. the structural characteristics right. of racism. We'll be treated as an individual. But you don't treat us as individuals. You continually treat us as members of a particular group that you stereotype or you're prejudiced against. So you go up to a black person you don't even know and hate them because they are black. That ain't got nothing to do with the individual data uh, experience, uh, engagement with that person. You're treating us as a collective. Mm. So it's collective when it's convenient. It's individual uh, when it's to the, the to the delight 
or benefit of uh, that particular person or community assessing us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you got the individual stuff on the one hand, where if we're treated as individuals, exceptions from the group, that's problematic. You're better than, Dr. Addy, you're better than most of the other people that I've met of your color and you've got a better character and you're more, you're hardworking and going to praise you at the expense mm -hmm. of your group through mm -hmm. the means of a stereotype that mm -hmm. dishonors the group and therefore exaggerates or distorts the individual. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that stuff is tough. Uh, no doubt. And there are, you know, issues on both sides as a collective, as an individual. And we've got to confront those. We've got to acknowledge our group solidarity. And we've got to acknowledge our quest for individual expression so that we don't impose those restraints on each other. You know, you ain't really black because you scuba dive. You know, you ain't really black because you trans. No, you ain't really black because you queer. No, you ain't really black because you Afrofuturist. You ain't really black because you like country music. You ain't really black because you only listen to Beethoven and not Busta Rhymes and mm -hmm. on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So we impose these constraints, impose these narrow limits on ourselves as well. Now that's not to say that those who operate within our communities who are hurting and harming Black people, mm. who self-hate, and as a result of that, other hate, mm. uh, that's real too. Mm. But everybody who's not part of the group in the main is not a self-hater and doesn't want to undermine the capacity of Black people to move forward as a community. They want to argue for some oxygen to breathe the air that they feel most comfortable inhaling. So it's a constant battle. It's a constant pivoting between, toggling between the collective and the individual, but the, the, the corrosive consequences of both, of seeing our Black people traumatized, regardless of our, you know, our uh, economic status or our racial, uh, you know, beliefs or our religious orientation or our sexual orientation on the one hand. And there's the stuff we do to each other to impose narrow constraints and judgments on each other. And it's what we have to put up with in a society that wants to touch our hair, that wants to believe that microaggressions are harmless, the Karens of the world, to dictate where we can eat and not eat, uh, sell water and not sell water, lemonade, not lemonade, barbecue, not barbecue, uh, go into, um, you know, a coffee shop and be treated as a thug. Uh, and the like, or at a university and be seen as out of place. So all of that stuff we're constantly trying to negotiate between, and it's even more havoc wreaked when we impose those narrow, vicious beliefs on each other as well. Yeah, yeah, that's so well said because of all the tensions between the two, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I'm curious from your your perspective as a sociologist and this, you know, all the other hats that you wear too, you talked you talked about you know all the things all the risks of being a black person in this country as you've just gone through and I know you mentioned that in your convocation address at Meharry Medical College as well mm -hmm. how does that how do you see that impacting our mental health in general and just our outlook in the world and how do we actually try and move through that you know not necessarily maybe from a mental health lens or right. psychiatric or psychological lens but from your perspective as a sociologist like what are healthy ways that we can actually how one how does it impact us and what are healthy ways we can move through that to still thrive and not have this false sense of hope that you talked about? Yeah, well, you know, you, you want to have as clear a concept of your capacities as possible mm -hmm. so that you can have a realistic assessment of your likely trajectory of success and achievement in the world. 
you got to figure out ways to have a realistic assessment of self mm. in regard to obstacles that might prevent the flourishing of that self mm. and therefore negotiate a world that is constantly throwing up obstacles. And you're constantly through resilience, trying to overcome them, trying to engage them, but also use them as grist for your meal mm. Mm. as a story in your larger narrative of success or overcoming. So you got to be as cunning and as clever and as crafty as our ancestors, you know, uh, faking like they like stuff when they didn't like it. Uh, you know, yes, or massa when they were like, mm -hmm, giving them the bird behind the scene or putting, um, shall we say, urination into their water to make it taste better. Mm finding everyday forms of resistance, aborting babies sometimes from enslavement, breaking tools and implements. Hey, it don't work. What you want me to do? Mm. Breaking the legs of animals so that they couldn't, you know, be used and deployed and enslaved to work. So they were all kind of crafty, cunning, creative, mm. clever ways we found to negotiate. Now, I don't want any animals to be hurt, and I don't want any tools to be broken unnecessarily, uh, but I'm talking about an approach, a mindset, mm. a mental health strategy mm. that says that at all costs, I must maintain my belief that God has blessed me, the universe has blessed me, if you don't believe in God, that I am who I am as a result of the talent I have. I should be able to recognize that talent in a, in a goal-oriented society that throws up impediments mm. and you know, um, things that prevent my flourishing. I've got to constantly fight against that. I got to fight against the self-doubt that has been implanted mm -hmm. in me, not because of an inherent sense of inferiority, but by an imposed one. Mm -hmm. uh, that has been inherited from a dominant white supremacist logic that continues to constrain who I am or a sense of self in the midst of that. So mental health, you got to, you know, maintain, you know, look, look, I'm worthy. I'm good. It's all right to acknowledge my vulnerabilities and my faults and my flaws, but also to stand up and to celebrate my achievements, the vast region of possibility that I have barely begun to tap. Uh, that is open to me. And I must insist on realizing that ambition. Uh, that's a mentally healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, the new movie King Richard is coming out where Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena, had to fight a bunch of stereotypes. Mm -hmm. He's crazy. He's got two daughters. What does he know? He has no experience with tennis. And he's in Compton in the concrete jungle. What the hell does he know? Well, enough to produce two of the greatest tennis players ever. One, arguably the greatest tennis player ever, mm -hmm. bar gender. Another one, one of the greatest of all time in Venus. Mm. So, yeah, he was crazy like a fox, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, uh, against the grain, looking mm -hmm. unorthodox. Sometimes we have to be unorthodox. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to be on the margins. We can't be in the main, uh, the mainstream. Uh, you have to flow in the way and the cadence uh, uh, that has been given to you, the moral mm -hmm. ambitions that have been nurtured in you, the styles, the the measures and means that are most akin to your flourishing that don't hurt or harm others. Mm -hmm. So in terms of mental health, yeah, you know, you got to figure out ways to affirm self, to love self, to embrace self as other selves creatively engage in the same process, fighting for opportunities, opening doors, mm -hmm. uh, not feeling that your success 
um, is harmed if another person's success uh, is present. Mm. Uh, a lot of things we can do to reinforce our sense of self. Go to mm. church, go to temple, go to synagogue, read a religious book, uh, a set of affirmations, mm. have goals that are articulated on refrigerator doors, mm-hmm. and on and on and on. Read the, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, the Uli Quran, the Tao Te Ching, whatever it is that floats your boat, Superman, Batman, <laughs> comic books, you know, mm. rap lyrics, Little Wayne, mm. Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, uh, Lauren Hill, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it takes to sustain you. Listen to Anita Baker or Luther Vandross or whatever it is that mm-hmm. uplifts you, that gives you the confidence and mm-hmm. courage and conviction uh, to move forward and have a strong uh, self-concept, a mentally healthy Mm -hmm. outlook Mm -hmm. that keeps at bay the demons of depression and distress and anxiety that eat away at the fabric of your Mm -hmm. self-confidence in this world. Mm -hmm. So well said. And I love all the pieces that you pulled in because there's so much of that that ties into the, the brain science and the neuroscience of what we need moving forward to, even as you talked about the expectation that we have uh, for ourselves or the importance of community or the importance of music and how that really engages, you know, reward pathways in our brain. They're important for helping us kind of move through things on a day-to-day basis. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's great hearing that, you know, that perspective from you as a uh, minister, a sociologist and professor and how that ties in so strongly to neuroscience about what it really means for our brains and helps us to move through some of these challenges in a lot of ways. Um, as well. And again, it loops back to what you mentioned earlier on, I think too, about that, that balance between uh, the self-care and then also kind of moving through things, but not trying to sway one way or the other. But I mean, the way that you kind of painted that picture for really having a holistic balance and really having those pieces baked in, as you mentioned, I think is, is so powerful. And, and I imagine that, you know, even if it hasn't been something that you've stated throughout your, you know, your long career, it seems like you have those pieces in place to really kind of keep those pieces in check in a sense. Which yes, I think sir. Is really no, no, no. Really well important. stated, eloquent, more eloquently than I did, but yes, sir. And those neural pathways that develop, those endorphins that are released, those, the psychochemical, psychoneurochemical, you know, possibilities that are unleashed. If it's good for your soul, it's good for your, your endorphins, it's good for the biology, it's good mm-hmm. for the neurotransmitters that carry messages of hope and aspiration and possibility without being, you know, narrowly uh, retrofitted mm-hmm. as positive, mm-hmm. as opposed to deeply rooted in hope, because so hope confronts the negative, confronts mm-hmm. the horrible, confronts the terrorizing, the traumatizing, and then gives answer uh, to those pathways that, that portend nuclear explosion in your brain mm-hmm. and redirect them <laughs> towards something mm-hmm. more powerful and uplifting and beautiful mm-hmm. and edifying. Uh, at the same time. Mm. Oh, totally agree. Full circle in a lot of ways. I know we're running short on time, but I did want you to give you a chance just to talk about your upcoming book um, as well, because I know that's going to be released very soon. And yes, sir. what should readers expect from this latest, uh, this latest gifting? Well, thank you, sir. Uh, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America is a kind of collection of stuff I've been doing for nearly the last 30 years. Sermons, essays, uh, reviews, film. Mm. Um, you know, interviews with me and others, mm-hmm. um, commencement speeches, uh, protest speeches, 
uh, op-eds, every genre. I've got a restless fascination with literacy mm. and expression and how to articulate ideas and aspirations that are not limited to one genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, people will get a chance to peek into my own spirit, my mind, my soul, my desires, my ambitions, my thoughts, and uh, see me reckoning and wrestling uh, mm-hmm. with them out loud in public spaces mm-hmm. that allow others to be challenged, to be championed, uh, and hopefully to be uplifted uh, at the same time uh, to do their own thing, to mm-hmm. express themselves in ways that are appropriate and uplifting, not only to themselves, but to, to the communities around them. Mm-hmm. I look forward to reading. I mean, even the way you just characterize that, I love the fact that it has that wrestling, the wrestling and the hope together. Cause as we were talking, that seems, I mean, that's the key piece so that we don't get in this facade of not having to work through things to get to a place of hope and healing. So. Yes, sir. Thank you, my brother. Well, I appreciate you taking the time again to be on the Addy Hour. I'm, I, this is a conversation I think a lot of people are going to go back to and probably listen to a few times to catch all the nuances and the nuggets that you, uh, you dropped throughout. So really appreciate your, your time with us and just for joining this conversation. Thanks for having me keep up that extremely important work of keeping us on the right path of mental health, mental well-being, emotional security mm-hmm. in the midst of vulnerability. Thank you so much for the work you do, my friend. Of course. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to contribute in a meaningful way. Thank you, sir.